0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 26th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. Let's start by taking a look at the weather. For today, cloudy with scattered flurries a northwesterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour. Today's high 21, tonight's low 10. Tomorrow, morning snow is likely. It'll be windy with a wind out of the west at 20 to 30 miles per hour plus. The high tomorrow will be 32, the low will be 13. Then on Saturday, snow likely with a northeasterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour, a high of 20, a low of 4. Then on Sunday, there's a chance of snow early with a northwesterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour, a high of 11 and a low of 4 below. Our first story on the front page is written by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette, headline, Jackson Convicted of Killing Family, Dateline, Cedar Rapids. A Lynn County jury Wednesday convicted Alexander Jackson of three life sentences without the possibility of parole for what a prosecutor called the execution of his father, mother, and 19-year-old sister in 2021. The 22-year-old Jackson was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. He fatally shot his father, Jan Jackson, mother, Melissa Jackson, and sister, Sabrina, in their Northeast Cedar Rapids home on June 15, 2021. He showed no reaction when the verdict was read, and his lawyers attempted to shield him from television and still cameras in the courtroom when deputies handcuffed him and let him out of the courtroom he appeared to tear up alex wanted the world to think he was a victim of this horrendous crime but we know that is not the case and now everyone knows the truth of what happened that day according to k jackson jan's sister and her daughter danielle jackson parsons they said that in a statement after the verdict alex murdered three members of our family And that pain will never go away, the family said. Jan, Melissa, and Sabrina were loved. They will live on in our hearts and the hearts of those who knew them forever. They also wanted to thank the prosecution team and the jury for giving our family justice. Kay Jackson and her daughter were in the courtroom throughout the six days of testimony. The jury deliberated about five and a half hours over Tuesday and Wednesday, and sentencing is set for March 3rd in Lynn County District Court. First Assistant Lynn County Attorney Monica Slaughter, after the verdict, said this was an important case, but they treat every case the same, giving it the utmost attention as they do in all violent offenses. She and Assistant Lynn County Attorney Jordan Shear were confident of their case, but at the same time aware that 12 jurors may view evidence differently. Jackson also was represented well, Slaughter said, but they were hopeful that the family would receive justice. It was a circumstantial case, so it was crucial to have evidence from the crime scene, said, and Slaughter complimented Brandon. Bosenberg, a former Cedar Rapids crime scene investigator. Bosenberg was responsible for collecting evidence, including Jackson's palm prints that were found on the .22-caliber semi-automatic rifle he used to kill his family. Police also had video evidence from Ring doorbell cameras that didn't show anyone entering or leaving the Jackson home at the time the murder happened slaughter pointed out that evidence that didn't exist signs of an intruder or forced entry to the house also was important to help prove jackson was the killer shire said they always hope they give the family some kind of peace so they can eventually move forward with their lives Slaughter said, I don't think that makes this verdict any easier on them, knowing that a family member killed and murdered their other family members, but at least now the healing process can begin. According to testimony, Jackson made a 911 call on June 15, 2021, saying someone broke into their house and shot him in the foot, and another family member was also shot. He could not describe the intruder or he could only describe the intruder as a black man in black clothing and green shoes. Police found no forced entry, and nothing was stolen or out of place in the home, according to testimony officers found jan in the lower level with five gunshot wounds melissa was in the master bedroom with three gunshot wounds and sabrina was in her lower level bedroom next to alexander's room with two gunshot injuries a medical examiner said they each died from multiple gunshot wounds melissa jackson was shot in the eye at close range jackson never admitted to police that he killed his family he was interviewed for several hours at the hospital while being treated for the gunshot to his left foot, but continued to blame the alleged intruder. During his clothing, the defense focused on the lack of physical evidence, saying this was a circumstantial case which jurors should be questioning because there's, quote, not a shred of evidence this disproves Jackson's versions of events of that day. That's according to Tyler Johnson, who's Jackson's lawyer. Johnston also focused on the fact that the prosecution couldn't say why this happened. What was Jackson's motive, Johnson asked, because he had no reason to harm his family. In her rebuttal clo- uh, closing, Slaughter said Jan Jackson had told Alexander he needed to get a job or he had to move out. He had only $30 in his bank account. Slaughter said, is money the motive? Would he inherit all the money and assets from his parents? I don't know, but I don't have to prove a motive. There's never going to be a good enough reason why he killed his family." A scholarship fund has been established by one of Sabrina Jackson's former Kennedy High School teachers in her name. The scholarship supports travel expenses for Kennedy students who are interested in participating in the annual school-sponsored trip to Japan, which Sabrina attended. Donations to the fund should be directed to the Cedar Rapids Community Schools Foundation. Also on the front page is a story written by Marissa Payne of the Gazette, CR will use eminent domain for flood control. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. The city of Cedar Rapids is gearing up to use eminent domain to acquire more properties in the Time Check area, which is a working-class neighborhood that was devastated by the 2008 flood to build its permanent flood control system. Remaining residents who didn't take voluntary buyouts and have not renegotiated a deal with the city now face more immediate pressure to sell or have their homes condemned through eminent domain proceedings. The city is beginning to make headway on permanent flood protection around the northwest neighborhood but some residents are preparing to put up a fight to either stay in their homes or get higher compensation for having to move to make way for the $750 million system of flood levees and gates which are intended to shield residents from rising Cedar River waters. A condemnation hearing on Wednesday morning at the sheriff's office provided the first test that city officials and neighbors are looking to as the precedent for how future eminent domain proceedings may pan out. Another fifteen to twenty residents may look to challenge the city's move to acquire their houses. Wednesday's hearing before the Lynn County Compensation Commission on Condemnation entered centered on the property on Fifth Street Northwest, where Matt Robinette lives. The six-member panel, which is mostly made up of people with real estate expertise, heard arguments from both the city and Robinette on Wednesday, and also visited Robinette's home to assess the exterior. Robinette said he first received a letter from the city in the fall of 2021, informing him that his home would be need to be acquired for flood control neighbor speaking on robinette's behalf greg vale said the compensation offer was hundred thirty five thousand dollars for the home that robinette has lived in since nineteen ninety five offers are based on fair market value not assessed value they all said robinette is willing to sell his three bedroom two bath home but has received inadequate offers He said the city's appraiser didn't properly value the size of Robinette's property with rooftop skylights, a hot tub, views of the Cedar River, and recently updated infrastructure such as plumbing and heating. Robinette told the commission he didn't let an appraiser inside the house, attributing that to the COVID-19 pandemic and the dogs he had at the time. The city hired Russ Monternach to appraise the home, and he acknowledged his expertise is mostly with commercial appraisals. Vail said, Matt is willing to sell his house. He's not trying to fight public use. He's not trying to keep his property in an area that's going to be in the way of the project. He's just trying to get the amount of money that it's going to take for him to buy another place." After a closed-session discussion, ultimately the commission unanimously agreed to increase Robinette's offer to $150,000 with another $5,000 for moving assistance. Residents are eligible for up to $31,000 in relocation aid. Robinette said he would look to hire an attorney to challenge the decision within the 30-day appeal window. He said his home is a place where there's ample room for him to entertain friends and for his dogs to run around the yard. He said it's a unique property. According to a June memo from City Manager Jeff Pomeranz to the Cedar Rapids City Council, the time check area acquisition includes all properties from Kew Avenue Northwest upstream to the north end of the flood control system where ellis lane northwest meets the bluff by ellis park in the fall of twenty twenty one according to the memo the public works department sent letters to owners of property between ellis park and kew avenue northwest beginning acquisition for more than half the remaining northwest neighborhood properties that are needed for flood control work Four additional properties between Penn Avenue Northwest and Q Avenue Northwest are also included in this phase of acquisitions. As of June, the city anticipated 30 acquisitions remained in the Northwest neighborhood. Not all of those would necessarily go through eminent domain proceedings if residents negotiated offers with the city property owners were able to approach the city any time for a buyout until construction is imminent and a buyout becomes mandatory. That period has passed for about 1,300 eligible properties, most of which took the voluntary buyout. Flood Control Program Manager Rob Davis provided the county panel with an outline of the flood levy, running through time check at O Avenue Northwest and said the footprint of the flood control system goes over the subject property and sits on almost all of it. The Cedar Rapids City Council in 2021 awarded $5.1 million in Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds to elevate a segment of O Avenue Northwest over the levee. According to the city, properties cannot remain on the wet side of the flood control levy because the system will raise the water surface elevation of floods at the 100-year flood and higher, further endangering those properties. Cedar Rapids resident Kathy Potts is a former Lynn County GOP chair and wrote a letter to Iowa's senior Republican Chuck Grassley asking him to leverage his powers to intervene and challenge city officials' authority to acquire residents' homes. Potts wrote, with the evidence presented, it's clear that the city of Cedar Rapids has cynically seized upon its lower-income residents' lack of influence and these are to take their homes. These are everyday Iowans we're talking about, individuals who have done nothing wrong other than not having access to resources or connections like those enjoyed by many in a privileged position. This injustice must end, and these hard-working citizens should not have their land taken. Art Ajai Dittmar is a neighbor of Robinette's who was wearing an R.I.P. time-check T-shirt at Wednesday's hearing, said the property owners who didn't take buyouts are the red-headed stepchildren of Cedar Rapids. He said there has always been an attempt to get rid of us. He lamented residents' lack of choice to stay in this area, of the west side. Moving on to the Iowa Today page, we have a story written by Marissa Payne of the Gazette. Council advances rezoning for salvage yard near Hawkeye Downs. Dateline Cedar Rapids. As Hawkeye Downs looks to refresh its property and find new ways to draw residents and visitors to the racetrack amid financial woes, the nine-member Cedar Rapids City Council was split but ultimately advanced a rezoning to make way for a salvage yard on the property. Roger Castle is the owner of Sunline, an auto salvage company, and Hawkeye Downs. He requested rezoning the approximately 94-acre property at 4406th Street Southwest from Light Industrial to General Industrial District. Some council members raised questions over Hawkeye Down's long-term plans as the nonprofit has received city funds to support its operation as a tourist attraction and community amenity. It has received thousands of dollars over the years through a slice of hotel motel tax funds that the city reaps from overnight guests. For instance, $35,000 in November. The city, also in 2022, awarded the organization $50,000 in federal American Rescue Plan Act funds as part of money given to nonprofits to support recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. The site is used as a car racing center, convention hall, and storage on 88 acres. The proposal would keep those uses and add a salvage yard to the northeast nine acres as Sunline would be relocated from off-site to this property. Addressing the council, Cassil said he is in a due diligence period with a large national company on the sale of Sunline's current property, but could not disclose which company. The Salvage Yard proposal would be subject to approval as a conditional use by the Board of Adjustment. The council advanced rezoning in a six to two vote. Council member Dale Todd was absent. The City Planning Commission recommended approval on January fifth. Castle said that the intention when purchasing the salvage yard more than a year ago, was to clean it up and turn it into a late model facility instead of a site for old junk cars. Motorists driving down 6th Street Southwest see thousands of junk cars now, but Casil is proposing the new site would include a 9-foot-tall steel corrugated fence and exterior landscaping on all four sides. An 85-by-300-foot building would enclose some operations. There'd be a 100-foot buffer between the rights-of-way and the site. Casill said, It's at street level, so when we put the 9-foot fence there, you won't see down in. When he began work on the property, Casill said the city planned road work on Ingleside Drive Southwest, and then the unidentified company approached him about purchasing the property that paused any work on the fencing. As for concerns about the environmental impact, Casill said the process of crushing junk cars at the salvage company does not involve spilling oil, gas, or antifreeze as was done in the past. Casill said that's completely changed in the last 10 years and it's changing every day. He said staff are diligently working to crush older cars and bring in new ones that are sold nationwide. Sunline has increased sales well over a million dollars a year and, according to Casillo, added 10 employees. Casillo said it's a good thing for Cedar Rapids at that point. The salvage use could not expand elsewhere on the site once the Board of Adjustment gives the OK for a predetermined area to be used for that purpose. Salvage use could continue where sunlight is now north of the site, under a different owner and possibly a smaller footprint. That's according to Development Services Manager Ken DeKaiser. Council Member Ashley Venori said Hawkeye Downs is a feature in District 5, which is the area she represents that encompasses much of the southwest quadrant. She moved to table the vote for a later date because she said she wanted a broader conversation about Hawkeye Downs' long-term picture. Venori said, I personally don't feel like I have enough information here. I think there is a broader conversion and conversation that we need to have about more comprehensive plans before I feel secure in voting on this. Councilmember Scott Olson disclosed he is a member of the Board of Hawkeye Downs and said he would not recuse himself from the vote because there is no financial conflict of interest as the Board does not own Hawkeye Downs. The Council last year narrowed ethics language in the city charter to limit top elected and appointed officials from discussing or voting, on matters where they have or could have a personal financial gain, barring them from weighing in on matters where they have a financial interest. Olson said Casillo recently presented to the board plans that included cleaning up the site with landscaping, trees, buffering, and fencing. He said he thought what's been verbally expressed is going to work to safeguard Hawkeye Downs' future. Olson said, without additional revenue, Hawkeye Downs will probably not exist anymore. Roger has a plan that I think has a chance of being very successful. Olson noted that the council's vote Tuesday was to change the zoning of the site from one industrial zone to another. The council was not approving the design of the salvage yard, but by advancing the rezoning would give Kaseel a chance to seek conditional use approval from the Board of Adjustments to use the site as a salvage yard. Olson said, I'm excited that we have a new owner and there's a chance of this site being improved dramatically. Council member Ann Poe, the former executive director of Hawkeye Downs, agreed with Venori and voted against rezoning. But Councilmember Tyler Olson moved to advance the rezoning request on its first reading and leave the details of the conditional use to the Board of Adjustment. Though Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell initially seemed poised to support tabling consideration of the rezoning, she joined Olson and four other council members in advancing it. The rezoning request will return to the council for a second and possible third reading at its noon february fourteenth meeting. Also on the Iowa Today page is a story written by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette. UI survey says half of responding employees considered leaving. Dateline, Iowa City. More than half the nearly 6,000 University of Iowa faculty and staff who responded to a recent campus survey said they've seriously considered leaving in the last 12 months, primarily due to workplace culture, career advancement, or pay. New findings from the Climate Survey, which was distributed in March 2022 to 45,000-plus faculty, staff, and undergraduate, graduate, and professional students, yielding a 23% response rate, touched a range of topics affecting the campus experience. Of the over 5,000 faculty, staff, and postdoctoral students who responded, 36% said they'd experienced some sort of negative bias, intimidation, or hostile treatment. Three-quarters of that group said the bias made them consider leaving UI. That's up from 69% in 2020. The percent was higher among specific demographics, like the under minority, multiracial, disabled, or LGTBQ groups. Bias also impacted performance for 70 percent of those who experienced it, eroded confidence for 69 percent, and affected the health of 72 percent. According to the survey, experienced bias is among the top five reasons for considering leaving the university. Topping bias among reasons respondents considered leaving UI was salary, which was cited by 62%, workplace climate and culture by 59%, and career advancement opportunity by 43%. The overall percent, who said that seriously considered leaving, was up 12 percentage points in 2022 from 39% in 2018. Assessing other hot campus culture topics like free speech and diversity efforts, the survey found most undergraduate student respondents felt faculty encouraged expression of diverse viewpoints. Fewer professional students felt so, at 78% and across all student levels, the portion who agreed that faculty encouraged diverse viewpoints was lower among minorities and conservative students, striking at the heart of a long-held grievance among Republican lawmakers who have hammered Iowa's Regent Universities for perceived left-leaning policies and professors. A solid majority of students, faculty, and staff agreed in the survey that UI priorities Divert prioritizes diversity, equity, and inclusion, although the 83 percent was down from 91 percent five years ago, and 36 percent of faculty and staff said UI puts too much emphasis on DEI, while 27 percent of faculty and staff said DEI distracts from achieving our academic mission, according to the survey. Liz Tovar, the Executive Officer and Associate Vice President of the Division of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, said in a statement, The common thread from these findings is to continue our focus on unifying our campus culture. UI has administered the survey every two years since 2018. UI Human Resources in October also collected data from employees via a Working at Iowa survey, which was sent to faculty and staff, excluding those with UI Healthcare, which will release its own study findings later this month. Of the UI employees who responded, representing a 69% response rate, a vast majority agreed at some level they have explicit work expectations, a respectful supervisor, and clear goals. Fewer respondents strongly agreed, or agreed, that units distribute workloads fairly at 53%, that UI recognizes faculty and staff achievements at 46%, and that UI offers promotion opportunities at 47%. On the Insight page, we have a 24-Hour Dorman article written by Todd Dorman, headlining, Competing for Scarce Dollars. Todd says. A lot of arguments have been made during Monday night's debates over providing nearly $900 million worth of state-funded education savings accounts for families sending their kids to private schools over the next four years. Most were made by Democrats in opposition to the bill, but Republicans also weighed in. I found a lot of it to be misleading at best, but I do agree with one point they made. Iowa's public schools will now face stiff competition, but unlike Republicans, I don't believe competition will make them better. That's because the competition won't be for students. In other states with ESAs or vouchers, the vast majority of state dollars are going to families already sending their kids to private schools. The competition will be for scarce state dollars. Public schools seeking adequate funding will compete with an ESA program projected to cost $345 million annually. They'll compete with billions of dollars in tax cuts, which mostly benefit the wealthiest Iowans. Some Iowans who get the fattest tax cuts also will get state-funded ESAs as they don't really need them. There will be no means, tests, or income limits. Pretty sweet deal. Public schools will compete with all the interest groups seeking more tax cuts. Republican lawmakers say they want to cut property taxes, which also pay for public schools. Some GOP legislators dream of eliminating the state income tax. Income tax payments made up half of the dollars that pay for the general fund, which funds education. Public schools will compete with all the various interest groups that are lobbying for state resources. Given that, the governor and other Republicans spent the last campaign attacking public schools as liberal dens of immorality to sell school choice. How well do you think public schools will fare in that competition for dollars? Public schools will compete with that reckless narrative and the animosity it has spawned. They'll compete with lawmakers who are determined to further undermine local control, replacing local decision-making with state edicts on everything from supporting LGBTQ students to issuing bonded debt to pay for infrastructure projects. It's exceedingly difficult to compete with an entrenched worldview, one that sees public schools as a threat, sees public school teachers as seeking to harm kids, and sees escaping public schools as preferable to making the investments and doing the hard work to make them better. Public schools and their supporters have put faith in the history of Iowa's solid support for public education, its pride in Iowa schools, and its determination to strengthen them. But that state no longer exists. Voters turned their backs on public schools, or, at best, shrugged. They handed Republicans massive majorities, and the governor's office—many Republicans spoke of that voter mandate Monday— Never mind nobody told voters about a $345 million program without limits. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered. Republicans shoved this through in just nine days, exempting the bill from having to go through the appropriations process. Its budgetary cost was disclosed the day it passed. But in the years ahead, we'll find out the true cost. And that's today's 24-hour Dorman from Todd Dorman. We have two community letters today, one's from Darrell Syverson of Strawberry Point. He says, Republican Rep. John Wills from Spirit Lake stated in a recent article in the Gazette that his concern about the values being taught in Iowa's public schools, parents do have a right to know how and what values are being taught in their school administrators and teachers should be transparent and publicly defend this false argument for the voucher program. Does your senator or representative agree with Mr. Wills? Find out. This is another false attack on our public schools. And that community letter comes from Daryl Syverson of Strawberry Point. Another one comes from Gary Huxford of Marengo, which says, Governor Kim Reynolds and Representative Ashley Hinson recently got involved in the LGBTQA plus bathroom rights issue. The Lindmar School Board has already squared away the bathroom situation. Then, along came the politicians who tried to overrule the board's decision by keeping LGBTQA plus students away from certain bathrooms. I have a question for Governor Reynolds and Representative Hinson. Has the LGBTQA plus community done anything to hurt or harm you in any way? If the answer is no then leave them alone. Don't bully people. There will be accountability for Governor Reynolds and Representative Hinson. And that's from Gary Huxford of Marengo. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 26th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. First, we start with the shorter other notices from Belle Plain, Chris zippy Lynn Lippincott, age 60, died Monday, January 23rd. The Rayback Newhouse Funeral Service of Belle Plaine is in charge of those arrangements. From Bertram, Anna May Hanson, age 94, died Sunday, January 22nd. Assisting the family will be the Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion. From Cedar Rapids, Agnes Chisa, age 41, died Tuesday, January 24th. Assisting the family will be the Brosh Chapel in the Avicenter Center of Cedar Rapids. Also from Cedar Rapids, Joanne Arles Talisrud Uncritch, age 86, died Tuesday, January 24th. The Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids is in charge of those arrangements. Also from Cedar Rapids, Stephen Vosatka, age 74, died Tuesday, January 24th. The Bros Chapel and the Ava Center of Cedar Rapids will assist the family. From Dyersville, Eileen Teresa Tegler Olberding, age 89, died Wednesday, January 25th. Assisting the family will be the Kramer Funeral Home of Dyersville. Out of Independence, Norman F. Fischkels, age 73, Died Monday, January twenty-third. The Rife Family Center Funeral Home and Crematory in Independence will be in charge of those arrangements. From Marion, John Buchanan, aged seventy-six, died Tuesday, January twenty-fourth. In charge of arrangements will be the Bros Chapel and the Ava Center of Cedar Rapids. And from Viola. Timothy Merfeld, age 67, died Sunday, January 22nd. Assisting the family will be the Getch funeral home of Anamosa. Now for the longer, more detailed funeral notices. Maria de Jesus Susie Reinhardt age 91, a pillar of the Cedar Rapids Mexican community, passed away January 23rd. Visitation will be to, from 2 to 5 o'clock Sunday afternoon at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. A private family funeral service will be held at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, with interment at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories Mausoleum. Memorials may be directed to the Alzheimer's Association. Susan Marie Armstrong Lent, age 62, passed away at her home in Cedar Rapids on Monday, January 23, surrounded by her family. Per Susan's request, there will be no services at this time. Terry J. Harbach, age 78, of Delhi, passed away on Monday, January 23, of a sudden illness at Unity Point Iowa Lutheran Hospital in Des Moines, A visitation for Terry will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 27th at the Boden Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Manchester. A funeral service will be held at 10 o'clock Saturday morning, January 28th at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Delaware, Iowa, with the Rev. Matthew Vesey officiating. The burial will follow at Evergreen Cemetery, Del High. Boning Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Manchester is in charge of the arrangements. Memorials may be made to the Makokita Valley Dollars for Scholars. Ralph Gary Miller, age 77, passed away Sunday, January 22nd in Newhall. Family and friends are welcome to attend a visitation from 2 to 5 o'clock Saturday afternoon at the T. Funeral Home in Cedar Rapids. Teresa Willie, age 61, of Hiawatha, died Monday, January 23, as a result of ovarian cancer since 2016. A visitation will be held from 9 to 11 o'clock Saturday morning, January 28, at murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. Private family services will be held. Scott Supple age 64, of Hopkinton, died Sunday, January twenty second, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City following a brief illness. Funeral services will be held at 11 o'clock Saturday morning, January 28th at St. Luke Catholic Church in Hopkinton with internment in the Hopkinton Cemetery with Hopkinton Fire Department honors. Friends may call from 3 to 7 o'clock at the church on Friday and again from 9.30 to 10.45 Saturday morning. A parish vigil service will begin at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon. The Getch Funeral Home of Monticello has taken Scott and his family into their care. Dr. Guy Terry McFarlane III passed away peacefully at the Solon Care Center on January 24th. A celebration of life for the Iowa City man will be held from 4 to 7 o'clock Monday night, January 30th, at the Kirkwood Room. In lieu of flowers, memorials can go to the Regina Education Center or the University of Iowa Men's Wrestling Program. His family says they appreciate the excellent care he received from the staff at the Solon Care Center. Karen Evans, age 83, of Springville, passed away on Monday, January 23rd at her home. In agreement with Karen's wishes, cremation has taken place. The family will greet friends and family from 2 to 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon at the Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A memorial service will be held at 11 o'clock Monday morning, January 30th at the funeral home, with an additional visitation one hour prior to service. Mike Schultz will officiate A private family burial will be held at Springville Cemetery in Springville, and a celebration of Karen's life will begin at 1 o'clock Monday afternoon at Sally's on Broadway in Springville. And Timothy Rockefeller, age 66, of West Branch, died on Friday, January 20th, at his home surrounded by family. A celebration of life will be held from 2 to 5 o'clock. Uh, February 25th at Stone Creek Golf Course in Williamsburg. In lieu of flowers, consider a donation to the Friends of West Branch Firefighter Foundation or Iowa Public Radio. Moving back to the news section of today's Gazette is a story co-written by Isabella Zaluska of the Gazette that says error could erase millions in tax revenue. A rush is on in the Iowa legislature to fix an oversight resulting from a previously passed property tax reform package that could mean potentially millions of dollars in lost revenue in the coming months for some Iowa cities. Lawmakers in 2013 passed a property tax cut package that, among other provisions, gradually lowered property taxes on multifamily residential units like apartments, nursing homes, mobile home parks, and manufactured home communities to where they would be taxed to the same rate as all residential property by 2022. Then, in 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law including multi-residential properties in the residential property class beginning in the 2022 assessment year for taxes due in fall 2023 and in spring 2024. The bill eliminated multi-residential as a property tax classification. In doing so, however, no corresponding changes were made to the section of Iowa Code that defines the mathematical formula used to calculate the number used to establish the statewide taxable value for each property class subject to taxation by cities, counties, school districts, community colleges, and other taxing entities. The result is a higher percentage for residential property as a whole because former multi-residential was included. That's according to Julie Rosen with the Iowa Department of Revenue's Local Government Services Division. She said the department didn't catch the oversight until October when staff calculated the property tax rollback rate. The rate is set annually by the department and is designed to cap the total taxable value for homes and farms from increasing more than 3%. If aggregate property values for homes and farms increase more than 3%, their taxable values are rolled back so that the total increase statewide is 3%. With former multi-residential erroneously included, staff calculated a rollback rate of 56.5% compared with what should be 54.6%. While that could be an unexpected relief for taxpayers, it could mean local governments have to scramble to find money to support the public services they had planned. To fix the oversight, the Governor's Office and the Department of Revenue filed a bill in the Senate that carves out all former multi-residential properties from calculating the property tax rollback rate for 2022 residential property tax assessments. With cities and counties in the throes of setting their budgets to take effect July 1st, the error by the state has thrown the process into disarray and may cause cities, counties, and school boards to either lose millions of dollars they had planned on or raise tax rates more than they wanted, and the clock's ticking to make a fix. In order for the state and the county auditor to have the necessary time to administrate administer the leveling of property taxes cities and counties are required to have their budgets approved and certified to the state and county auditor by march thirty first school districts are required to have their budgets set by april fifteenth Marion City Manager Ryan Waller told the Gazette the timing of the bill is frustrating as it changes the rollback percentage of the last minute in the budget process. In the current form, Senate Study Bill 1056 would eliminate more than $437,000 of revenue owed in fiscal year 24 to our community because of our positive growth. Waller and Cedar Rapids Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell, who was at the Iowa Capitol and met with lawmakers Wednesday, said they hope lawmakers will invite Iowa's mayors to the table to help find a collaborative and sustainable solution. O'Donnell said, I am extremely hopeful that mayors are a critical part of this conversation. As a mayor of the state's second-largest city, I am acutely aware of property taxes and the burden it can sometimes place on our citizens. I also know the expectations of our citizens in terms of the services they received and they frankly deserve." City Manager Jeff Fruin told the Iowa City Council this week the community would lose out on $1.7 million in planned revenue under the bill, which effectively sets a lower rollback rate of nearly two percentage points less. A majority of that, $1.2 million, would impact the general fund. Fruin said, at this point, all of the advice that we're getting from the state is to proceed ahead with our hearing schedule, but we have to understand that this legislation's been introduced. It may be entertained and passed, and if so, we will have that $1.7 million deficit essentially out of the gate with this budget. Fruin said that the city has enough reserves, more than $5 to absorb the impact if the council decides to go that route. He said, we created that emergency reserve for a scenario just like this. It's just unfortunate that it's here before us today. At Tuesday's city council meeting, Fruin said he wasn't ready to recommend any budget changes. He said city staff will work on analyzing options of how to overcome the challenges should the legislation pass. Fruin said, As you can imagine, cities across the state are sounding the alarm bells to their delegation. We're hopeful that nothing will happen, and the rate that they advance advertised last fall to cities so that we could begin the budget process will be honored. Coralville City Administrator Kelly Hayworth said the Iowa League of Cities met with the governor's office this week to talk about the ramifications this would have on cities. The legislation, as proposed, does not amend any deadlines of the budget process. The Coralville City Council this week voted to table setting a public hearing date on setting the total maximum property tax rate until the council's next meeting on February 14th. The bill is scheduled for a subcommittee hearing on Monday. Dan Dawson of Council Bluffs, who chairs the Senate Ways and Means Committee, said it's important for taxpayers and local governments to have clarity regarding the residential and multi-residential assessment rollback. Dawson said the committee will begin to evaluate the governor's proposal and continue our work to protect the taxpayer. If passed, the bill takes effect upon enactment and requires the Department of Revenue within two business days to issue an amended order certifying to the auditor of each county the percentages of actual value at which all property is subject to taxation. Senator Pam Joachim of Dubuque, the ranking member of the Iowa Senate's Committee on Tax Policy, said, "'My initial take is that this will be very detrimental to local communities.' One county auditor, Yokim said, told her the bill would lead that county to increase its tax rate 29 cents to maintain current tax dollars. If not, county revenue would drop by 1.1 million. On the top stories page, we have a story written by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette of The Gazette: GOP wants Iowa universities to explain concepts such as compulsory heterosexuality. Vanessa writes, a group of 26 Republican lawmakers wants Iowa's public universities to explain themselves and their teacher training curriculum by defining a long list of terms plucked from course descriptions like compulsory heterosexuality and equitable science teaching. The House Education Subcommittee on Wednesday passed the bill introduced by Republican Representative Schuyler Wheeler, and 25 other Republican representatives, such as House Speaker Pat Grassley, House Majority Leader Mark Winscheidel, Steve Holt of Denison, and Thomas Gerhold of Atkins. It requires each of Iowa's public universities, in consultation with the Governing Board of Regents, to submit a report to the General Assembly by February 27, defining with specifically a list individualized concepts and terms pulled from course summaries in each of their colleges of education. These were pulled from class titles or descriptions of the classes, subcommittee chair Wheeler said, highlighting a few from the University of Iowa College of Education, including diversity and identity in kindergarten through grade 12 education, culturally responsive classroom, anti-racist and anti-oppressive teaching and learning, and queer identities at all levels of kindergarten through grade 12 education. Wheeler said, these are taxpayer dollars going to some of these different things. When you look at these, you start to just honestly try and figure out what in the world do these even mean. So the purpose of this bill... It's not a witch hunt. It's just simply, we want some answers on how our taxpayer dollars are being used and what is going on in our teacher prep programs. The bill also would create an interim study committee to assess program planning for degrees in the colleges of education of these institutes of higher education governed by the Board of Regents and the curriculum necessary for completing a degree. The committee would include representatives and senators chosen by Republican leadership, and it would be charged with submitting a final report with findings and policy change recommendations. Connie Ryan is the executive director of Interfaith Alliance of Iowa Action Fund and told the reporters during Wednesday's subcommittee meeting, "...I have grave concerns over the Interim Study Committee and how it is currently designed." it is entirely possible that only members of the majority party will be on this interim study committee. Even more worrying, according to Ryan, is the committee doesn't include any professionals. She said, legislators are not necessarily professionals in curriculum. You're not necessarily professional educators. Ryan added, I'm super confused about this legislation. I'm not sure exactly what we're trying to accomplish. It feels like we are inferring that the teacher prep programs at the universities have some kind of agenda. Reeler responded, we as legislators are confused too. He said, I tend to study some of the, I'll just call it, new age ideologies that are out there. Some of these are quite interesting. Wheeler is among the 30-plus Republican lawmakers who recently introduced Iowa's version of Florida's Don't Say Gay bill, barring public school educators from teaching about the sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. Last year, Wheeler introduced the measure banning transgender athletes from competing in girls' and women's sports at Iowa schools and colleges. On Wednesday, Wheeler said the phrases and concepts his bill demands expectations for were pulled from courses like UI's LGBTQ Topics in Education, described as the examination of the intersection of policy and practice with respect to queer identities at all levels of K-12 through education history of queerness in the u s with focus on the creation of the concept of compulsory heterosexuality and the manner in which this concept is reinforced in k through twelve schools chuck hurley the vice-president and chief counsel for the family leader speaking in favor of the bill is also curious about what's being taught across Iowa's public universities, especially as it pertains to educators in training. He said, I think the taxpayers have a right to more information. I think it's clear to everybody who pays attention to our university education that there are some concepts that are probably running contrary to what I would say the majority of legislators now think is wise to advance Western civilization in a positive direction. Kenan Crow is the director of policy and advocacy with One Iowa and asked what lawmakers plan to do with the information once they receive definitions for the listed terms. He said legislators generally don't ask administrators to report unless they intend to do something with that information in the future. Things like recent trends in curriculum or current models of curriculum development, they said, Those things seem to me like things that we want educators to know about. Even asking administrators to report on those and other terms, according to Crow, is going to have a chilling effect. They said people are going to follow the path of least resistance, so if you tell a group of administrators that if you teach about X, Y, and Z, you're going to have to file a report about it, and that there are no additional funds with which to create and compile said report— then administrators are going to discourage folks from even teaching about X, Y, and Z. Taking a look now at a story written by Gage Miskiman of the Gazette about Iowa COVID-19 numbers. Gage reports that on Wednesday, Iowa reported 1,566 new COVID-19 cases in the past week, but that's a decrease from the 1,690 cases reported the previous week. The actual total, though, is likely higher given the availability of at-home test kits, the results of which are not reported to the state. In Lynn County, 146 new COVID-19 cases were reported in the last week, down from 159 the week before. The county has recorded 64,000 cases since March of 2020, according to the Iowa Department of Public Health. Johnson County reported 105 new cases last week, up from 97 the previous week. The county has recorded over 44,000 cases since the start of the pandemic. To date, over 894,000 people have tested positive for COVID-19 in Iowa since the pandemic was first detected in March of 2020. The state confirmed 28 deaths from COVID-19 in the past week, two in Linn County, one in Johnson County. Lynn County overall, has recorded 656 deaths since the start of the pandemic. Johnson Counties had 174. The state reported 30 deaths this previous week. Since March 2020, 10,566 Iowans have died from COVID-19. In the past week, 154 were hospitalized in Iowa, down from the 177 reported last week. The number of patients in intensive care declined from 17 to 15. Also on the Iowa Today page, Washington Mayor charged with sexual abuse. The state of Iowa filed charges against Washington Mayor Jaron Rosian this week, accusing him of third-degree sexual abuse, according to court documents. A criminal complaint filed in the case said the incident took place between Rosian and a 27-year-old active service member, referred to in the record as A.B. It happened at Rosian's bar in early morning of January 8th. The report says A.B. stated at one point while he and Rosian were playing pool in the bar, Rosian began loudly and repeatedly making crude comments about men's genitalia. The complaint said as Rosian was making this comment, he began sliding his right hand up A.B.'s right inner thigh and grabbing A.B.'s penis from outside A.B.'s pants. Rosen has served as the mayor of Washington, Iowa since 2018, but served as a council member from 2014 to 2018. Rosen's bail after his arrest was set at $10,000 cash only. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 26th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. You can assess a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thank you for listening.